Good morning, everybody. I gave an announcement last week about Christmas outside the box. Just want to point that out. It's in your bulletin. One thing I forgot to say, second service, and a couple people asked me, this Christmas luncheon is for men, women, and teenagers. Hope and Passion Ministries itself is not a women's ministry, although we do women's ministry. So you're all invited to this, so make sure you, you look at that. Um, I'd like to welcome everybody here today. I see uh, a lot of friends that have come, including my nephew that's waving to me, Adam, Noah, and Jake are over there, so I'm thankful for that. And um, even my friend Denise came this morning, who cheats at Scrabble. But that's okay. That's okay. We take cheaters. (laughs) Um, I'm glad everybody's here this morning, and I would like to encourage you to have your Bible out and ready Uh, If you'd bring the PowerPoint up for me, we'll be looking at different passages in the Bible. So if you don't have one, you can grab one from the pew in front of you. Um, I'm excited to share this message this morning. I'm hoping that a dream that I recently had is not prophetic for your sake. I've been struggling with some frozen shoulder on the right side. And so at night, often my fingers will go numb. The other night, my entire right hand went completely numb through the, eve- through the night. And when I woke up in the morning, I couldn't even feel my right hand. But that explained the reason that I had had the dream that I had that night. I dreamt that I was getting up and speaking to a big youth convention in some big sanctuary with bright red carpeting is what I remember. And I'm preaching away, telling the gospel, and all of a sudden, right about here, my hand flew off. Just completely flew off onto the carpeting over by the wayside. And the funny part was it didn't bleed or anything, but it was, you know, the skin was completely smoothed out at the end of the hand and also on my arms. It was kind of like preaching with a nub at the end, you know. It wasn't bleeding or anything. And it was laying over there, and I said to the congregation, I said, don't worry about that. Don't don't be distracted. That's just my hand. That happens all the time. And I, I called it a prosthetic hand, but it really wasn't. It was my actual hand. And I said to them, as long as I get it by the end of the message, it should be okay. The only problem happens is if it gets too cold, I can't reattach it again. So I'm hoping that doesn't happen because that would be a great distraction. That's what happens when your hand goes numb in the night. Uh, This message this morning is called Treasure Worth Everything. And it is taken from just two sentences in the Bible. But how many of you know that when Jesus Christ speaks, it's powerful? Amen? He created the whole universe just by his word. And so he shares this little parable, the parable of the hidden treasure, and it is highly impactful and can change a human life. And before we go to that parable, I think we ought to do justice to the whole concept of a parable. What are they? Because parable is one of those words that I found in Christian churches and youth groups when you say, let's talk about what a parable is. People's eyes glaze over. Whatever. You know, that's a boring word. No, it's not. A parable was one of the most exciting ways that Jesus ever taught. Now, what exactly is a parable? Well, it is when Jesus would take an everyday phenomena, a simple story that we could truly wrap our minds around. He talks about, you know, planting seeds or, or something very simple that we could understand. He takes a common phenomena and lays it alongside a deep and spiritual truth. Now, nobody knows the human mind or heart better than Jesus Christ. Amen? So he knows that we as human beings need word pictures and things to help us to understand. 
And so I came up with this analogy as I was studying the message. I thought, well, what a parable is really like is a set of railroad tracks. The word parable comes from the same root as we get the word parallel. So Jesus would take one track, which was a common everyday occurrence that you could fully understand, and he would lay that story parallel and right alongside an intangible, deep, eternal truth that might be difficult to apprehend without the story. Amen? But when he lays the tracks together, you and I can jump on the train and ride that train right into glory. Amen? We need the story and we need the deep spiritual truth. So think of it as railroad tracks. That's what a parable is. Now the question becomes, why did Jesus speak in parables? Well, I already alluded to one thing. He knows how the human brain works and he knows this would be good for us to make our understanding easier. But there's something deeper about the parables. And you have to go back and we have to think about what it was like when Jesus first came to the earth 2,000 years ago. How many of you in the sanctuary this morning know that when Jesus came to his own, his own received him not? Who knows that? He came to the Jewish people because he was Jewish. He came to save them, but they rejected him. Now, we need to understand that's an important concept to grasp, that when we read our Bibles, the Jewish people in Jesus' day were taking the Old Testament scriptures And picking out the prophecies that talked about Jesus as king. Amen? And how many of you are thankful that he is the millennial king? That he's coming back one day to set up the millennial kingdom. And many of the prophecies in the Old Testament are about Jesus as king. Well, the Jewish people latched on to those scriptures and refused to believe the truth of the other set of prophecies, which said, before he comes back as king, he will first come as suffering servant. Amen? Jesus divinely invaded history 2,000 years ago to come and to suffer on the cross to pay for our sins. He is going to divinely invade history a second time at some time in the future. It could be minutes from now or years from now. But he's going to do it again. And that time when he comes, he's coming back as reigning king. Hallelujah. The problem was the Jewish people did not want to accept him as suffering servant. They wanted him to come back and give them rulership of the earth under him. So much so that even Jesus' own disciples, before he ascended up to heaven, said to him, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, basically, don't worry about that right now. Worry about getting power from the Holy Spirit to be witnesses so that more people can enter that kingdom when I do bring it around. Amen? And that is the whole situation. He came first time to suffer that we might be saved so that when he comes the second time, we could be a part. Because make no mistake about it, whether anybody ever came into the kingdom of God, Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He could have come the first time and set down his kingdom right then and there. He could have. But if he would have, none of us could be a part of it. He had to come the first time to pay for our sins. And this apostle paul was talking about in first corinthians chapter 1 beginning at verse 18 he says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are dying but to those who are being saved it is the power of god 
Then he goes on to say Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. The Jewish people stumbled over Jesus Christ. In their running to him as king, they missed him as crucified Savior. And so when he came to the earth, and he speaks in Matthew mainly to Jewish people, when he came, he spoke in parables. One reason was because this kingdom of God thing is a bit of a mystery. And he doesn't want to end up crucified before his time in claiming to be king of the Jews. It was a bit mysterious not just to the Jewish people, but to the people who were trying to accept him as Savior. It was hard to wrap their minds around the fact that he came the first time to die, and he's not going to come until a second time to bring the fullness of the kingdom. Amen? The first time he inaugurated it, the second time he will consummate it. So he begins to try to unveil this mystery to those who want to understand, and he speaks largely in parables about his kingdom. But there is another reason, not just a historical reason, but there's another reason that he spoke in parables that applies directly to every single one of us in this sanctuary this morning. And we ought to take this scripture to heart greatly. Because every single one of us stands before God and will answer for these words of Jesus. And they are important words for people who attend church regularly. Why did he speak in parables? Let's go to Matthew chapter 13, the chapter where we find our parable. Before we go to that, Jesus is going to answer the question as to why he is speaking in them. Now, He had started sharing the parable of the sower. He hadn't explained its meaning yet. And so the disciples came to him and said, Jesus, why do you speak to these crowds of people in stories, in parables? Why don't you just tell it out straight? Well, let's let Jesus give the reason himself in Matthew chapter 13. I can read the words, but not the numbers without these. Okay, beginning at verse 11, he answered his disciples as to why he speaks in parables. He says, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been given. Now, let's just stop there, because do you understand the great thing that Jesus just said? He said to people who wanted him, he looked at them and he said, to you guys, it has been given to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. You want in on an awesome secret? Let me tell you the secret of God's kingdom. It is an amazing miracle that the world still to this day cannot wrap its mind around. The battle for worldviews that is going on in our entire globe today centers around this one mystery. You ready for this? That a holy, completely right, transcendent, other than us God decided to put on human flesh and locate himself in the womb of a woman and suffer in this terrible world for people who rebelled against him to save them from their sins, that God put on human flesh. That is a secret of the kingdom of God that many people in the world still cannot understand or believe. Amen? But it is our hope and it is our salvation. You can take notes. Um, 
we don't have to turn there now, but 1 Corinthians chapter 2 talks about this secret wisdom. Paul says, the rulers of this age didn't understand the mystery of God coming in the flesh to save people. If they would have understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Amen? Do you think if those people really knew that that was God going to that cross to die for them, to be able to live forever, that they would have actually done it? But Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 to say, if you don't have God's Holy Spirit, you are not able to discern or understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Amen? And one thing that we take for granted, and a gentleman caught me after first service and said, thank you again for emphasizing the Holy Spirit. We take God's Holy Spirit for granted. But he is the reason in the sanctuary this morning that you can even understand what we are talking about. Amen? God's Spirit is working in human hearts right now. We can't see it, but there's all kind of spiritual battle taking place in this minute. People's hearts are being ripped open. Their minds are being opened up. God is doing eternal things in the pews, even though you're just sitting there, and some of you are really just sitting there. You know what I mean? But, but, but I, I've learned to look through that. I'm looking through the spiritual. I know what God is doing. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us there is a secret wisdom that God's Spirit gives to God's people who accept Jesus Christ. To understand the secrets of the kingdom of God. That a terrible, rebellious sinner like Shelley Prindle could be made into the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That doesn't make sense. Amen? But it has been given for you to understand that it is the truth. Amen? Paul talks about other mysteries. He talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, the mystery of the fact that there's coming a day when the trumpet will sound, and in the blink of an eye, dead flesh will rise again. Hey, that's a mystery I'm into. All right? You bury me and put my body in the grave. Go ahead. But the mystery is this. When the trumpet sounds, my body's coming up out of the grave. Now, that's a secret of the kingdom of God. Jesus looked at his disciples. He said, I'm speaking in parables. One reason is because to you it has been given to understand, to wrap your mind around this great treasure, this mystery of the kingdom of God. Then he says in the next verse, I believe it's verse 12, For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, there are times when I preach here at Norman Alliance when I wish the people said amen more often. I'm used to going places, amen. Okay? This is one of those times where I'm thankful that nobody is. Because this is a sober, sober verse. And it applies to every person sitting in the sanctuary and me standing here. I want you to look at this verse again. Jesus says to his disciples, For to the one who has more will be given. But to the one who has not, even what he has is going to be taken away. This scripture is basically saying that God will give you more light when you respond to the light in front of you. God will give you more truth when you respond to the truth he's put right in front of you for today. All right? But it's also saying that if I sit in a pew and I listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ, if God's Holy Spirit touches my heart and tells me something about himself and I don't respond, 
I will begin to have it taken away. And my heart will grow hard. And I contend this morning that one of the most dangerous, listen to me, one of the most dangerous places to be on the face of God's planet is in a pew week after week in a gospel-believing church when you are not responding to what's being said. You are worse off than an atheist cursing God in a corner somewhere if you sit in this pew week after week and you do not respond to the truth God is putting in front of you. I don't say that happily. It's scary. Romans chapter 1. Turn there with me for a minute. Romans chapter 1. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul is speaking and he says, For the wrath of God, not a pretty sight, the wrath of God, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. In the Greek, the word for suppress the truth there means to push back. It means to hold back. All right? So God, now listen, God goes on in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Being understood from what he has made so that every man, woman and child born under the sun is without excuse. Amen? This verse says, you know, we have this, this saying, you know, people go, the truth is out there, man. It's out there somewhere. Okay, the truth is outside of ourselves because God is transcendent, but the truth is coming at you all the time. You don't have to go on some big trek to look for the truth. That's what God's saying here. He's saying anybody on this earth can look up at the skies because the heavens proclaim the glory of God. You can look at your, the palm of your hand, feel the beating of your heart. You can understand and you should step back and say, hey, wait a second here. Somebody bigger than me made me. That's what Romans 1 is saying. And it's saying, and if you will acknowledge that, then God will give you more life, truth to step back and say, I wonder who he is. And if you respond to that, he will begin to show you himself and Jesus Christ. Amen? That is a promise of God. This corroborates what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 13. That the only way the truth is not coming to you, the only reason you would end up damned and separated from your creator is because you push back what is right in front of your face. And this does not just apply to the unsaved because when Jesus is using it in Matthew 13, he's talking to his disciples. Listen, if God is convicting you about something, if God's Holy Spirit is telling you something, you better respond because your heart can grow dull. Now let's keep reading. Let's keep reading in the verses where we were. He says, but the one who has not, even what he has, will be taken away. And again, we're in Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. Now look at this. 
Because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. So they have physical eyes. They're watching the gospel being spoken, but they're not seeing it with their heart. They're hearing the gospel with their ears. They're sitting in Sunday school class, but they're not getting it in their heart. Then Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah. Very sad scripture here. Jesus says, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown, what's it say? It has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Jesus is clearly saying, it is possible for your heart to grow hard because you hear it over and over and over and over and over again, but you don't hear it. You don't respond to it. Your heart can grow dull. And Jesus said the tragedy is if they know in their own mind. See, every person makes a moral decision about God. There is not an atheist on the face of the earth because of the overwhelming evidence for atheism. Atheists are atheists. And people who sit in church pews that aren't saved are people who are not saved because of this one thing. They have said in their own heart, no, if I truly understood and listened to what God was saying, I'd have to give up my life for his life. Don't want it. And so we play a religious game. All right? Their hearts have grown dull. And Jesus says, because they know that if they opened up their ears and understood, they would have to turn, and then I would heal them. You'd think, well, they should want to be healed. Well, they don't want to be healed if they have to be accountable to God. That's the problem. That's the sticking point. And that's what this whole parable is going to have to do with. Listen, when it says otherwise they would turn and I would heal them, that word for turn there is the same word that we, that we think of when we think of repent. How do you get into the kingdom of God? What did Jesus say? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. To turn or repent means to do a 180 in your mind and in your heart. It's very simple visually. I'm standing here and I'm looking this direction. This is Shelley Prindle looking at my life, what I want, want to be accountable to myself, want to do what I want to do. I don't care if it hurts God. I don't care if it hurts anybody else. I want myself. There I am facing this direction. To turn means that I recognize that there's a kingdom of God over here. There's a Savior over here. But to go to him, I must repent. I must say, I don't want Shelley Prindle's will anymore. I want God's will. I need a Savior. And so I do an about-face 180 turn. I've turned. Now, I may not be running a marathon this direction. I may not even be taking large steps. Even if it's little tiptoes, I'm turned this way and now I'm looking towards God. Amen? And I'm refusing to go back. And Jesus said, if they would repent of their sins, if they would truly turn to me, I would what? Heal them. Why do you think the world is such a mess? Why do you think even within the church of Jesus Christ there's so much slop and mess going on? So, much, so many mind problems and addictions and situations. Listen, we've got to turn and turn completely if we want to be healed. Now that word heal, heal there in the Greek means to free from errors and sins. 
I want to use a physical example so you can wrap your mind around this. You know, I've given my testimony about my diabetes. Type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease. It's a mystery to science. For some unknown reason, when I was 13 years old, my own body attacked the beta cells in my pancreas. Not my whole pancreas. The rest of my pancreas works. But there's a spot in there where the beta cells are. They have been attacked. My beta cells in my pancreas, in this whole huge body, that's all that doesn't work. That's the only error. Well, and the frozen shoulder. But anyway, okay, that's the only error. So that one error, because I don't produce insulin and because I have to do it on my own, there's too much sugar surging through every capillary of my body. It affects things from my eyes down to my toes. Everything is affected by one error. You with me? And if I would be healed or freed from that one error in the beta cells of my pancreas, all the havoc that is wreaked throughout my body would be gone. I want to tell you something this morning. If you have an error in your heart, if you have an error in your spirit, if there is something in your life you have not yielded to God, it is wreaking havoc over your entire life. One error. You turn that error over to God. He fixes that error and your life suddenly begins to make some sense it never made before. Amen? Turn and I would heal them. So Jesus has told us, I speak in parables for many reasons. And one of the reasons is, if you want me, if you want to learn more of me, I want you to understand and grow. But if you've made a moral decision to rebel against me and harden your heart, you're not going to get this when I say it. You're going to think it's just a dumb old story. And now we go to the parable of the hidden treasure. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44. It's the coolest little parable. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Now, parables were usually meant to only make one main point, so you don't dig apart every detail of a parable and try to find its meaning. You look at the greater picture. Before we get into the, the meaning of this parable, let's talk about the kingdom of heaven because this whole thing is about the kingdom of heaven. What is the kingdom of heaven? You know? It amazes me how many churches I travel to and I ask that question and people are like, what is it? The kingdom of heaven, Matthew uses the term heaven. The other gospel writers talk about the kingdom of God. It's synonymous. The kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, you want a simple definition, is wherever the will of God is done. It's wherever God reigns, which leaves it to be a very mysterious concept, my friends, very mysterious. Now, one thing we know is if you ask the average person, do you want to go to heaven, what are they going to say? Oh, yeah, I want to go to heaven. Because in heaven they don't fight wars. In heaven, people don't starve. In heaven, people don't die of cancer. In heaven, people get along. Why is that? Because heaven is a place where what? The will of God is done. The kingdom of God is wherever the will of God is done. And we can't wait for the day when God brings his kingdom to this earth completely and wholeheartedly. Amen? But for now, the kingdom of God is very mysterious. It exists in the human heart. 
It's largely unseen, almost undetected. It resides in normal, everyday people who are walking around in Levi jeans and Nike tennis shoes, maybe holy shirts, baseball caps. Oh, look, there goes the kingdom of God. Yeah, it's in people right now. Jesus said a few verses before this, he said, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. And if you've ever seen a mustard seed, they're like that big. Jesus said it's like the smallest of all the seeds we know of right now. But this mustard seed, it grows into a giant bush like a tree, and birds can come and perch in its branches. So Jesus is saying the kingdom of God starts out in a human heart. A person says yes to Jesus Christ, and God, through his spirit, deposits the kingdom inside of them. And then a person starts to do the will of God. I love the kingdom of God in people. Because the kingdom of God in people, when a person gets the kingdom of God in them, they start forgiving people they could have never forgiven before. When the kingdom of God comes into a person, they start sucking up injustices with a smile on their face and giving out joy instead of wanting for themselves. Amen? When the kingdom of God comes into a person, all of a sudden they have power to overcome addictions and selfishness and they change. Jesus said the kingdom of God is a wonderful, wonderful thing. It's where God's will is done. And it's done partially in saved people now. And it's done because of 2 Corinthians 5.17. If any man, woman, or child be in Christ, he is a what? He is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now listen, hold on to that verse. I want to tell you something. When Jesus came to the earth the first time, Matthew 4.23 says he began to preach the good news of the gospel of the kingdom. And you know what it says? He began to heal the sick, cast out demons. He began to throw out all the things of the devil and insert God's will. But we are still waiting for the day when the kingdom takes over everything. Hallelujah. Revelation 11.15 should be a memory verse of every Christian. It's a big picture scripture. The apostle John said, Then the seventh angel sounded, and I heard loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world, this dirty, rotten, stinky world, The kingdom of this world has now become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And on that day, suddenly, what was just a mustard seed in Marty Rogers is now this giant tree that everything in creation is coming to perch in because it all works perfectly right. Amen? Did you know that the same word for new creation in 2 Corinthians 5.17, the same Greek word for new, when it applies to a person being made new, is the exact same Greek word for new that you will find in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God as a bride prepared for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with man. He will live with us. And we will be his people. 
And then that same voice from the throne goes on to say, listen to me. Behold, I am making all things new. Hallelujah. Then he looked at John and he said, write this stuff down, Johnny boy. Because these words are trustworthy and true. And I know on any given ordinary day, you may not think they're true, but you better live for the bigger picture. Don't you live for the hangnail and the economic troubles and all the things going on in the world. You live for this. These words are trustworthy and true. This whole world is going to be the kingdom of God. And the only people who will be there are the ones who have the mustard seed in their hearts now and are doing God's will now. Says the kingdom of heaven. So I just wanted to give you a little taste of the kingdom of heaven so it's something that you understand you really want. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Now, in Jesus' day, this was not uncommon to hide treasure in a field. They didn't have banks. They didn't have safety deposit boxes and big metal vaults. People literally took their treasures. If there was fear of an invading country or if a man had to go off to war, men would commonly take their family treasure and put it in the ground. It's kind of a good idea. Except my dad, he uses a metal detector. He might find that if we did that. But, I mean, it was a neat idea. So all over Palestine, you could find treasures in the ground if they were forgotten or left. People would put their treasure in the ground. So we don't know why this guy or how he found it, but what God is telling us is a man came upon someone's treasure in a field. And he must have dug enough to get a grip to see what it was, dug deep enough, looked at the whole thing. It says after he found it, he covered it up. Why? Well, think about it. He looks at the treasure. You know, we don't know how much stuff he had. We don't know if he was rich or he was poor, what the situation was. And I think God did it on purpose that we don't know. Because I don't care if you only have 10 cents in your pocket or you walk around with $100 bills in your wallet. I don't care if you live in a tiny house like mine or you're in some gigantic sprawling mansion. i got to tell you something. Nothing you have compares to the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter how much stuff you have. The kingdom of God is always greater. Amen? So this guy finds this treasure and he covers it up. Why? Because he looks at it and he says, Whoa! Whatever, whatever is here is worth more than everything I have. My gosh, I've just found something that's worth more than everything I've ever worked for. Everything I own. I'm going to cover this back up because I've got to go do some business over there. I want this. So I've got to go and take time to sell all my stuff so I can buy the field and get the treasure. Why did he cover it up? Because he needed some time to go do business. He needed some time to get all his stuff together and say, I'm getting rid of this for that. Listen, I believe the whole point of the parable of the hidden treasure is this. you got to know, you got to do business with God if you want that kingdom. This isn't some easy preaching, I want to have Jesus in my heart. I have no idea what that means. No. You want the kingdom of God? It means repent and turn from your sins. It means look at Jesus Christ and the kingdom he brings and the kingdom that's to come and say, I don't care who I have in my life. I don't care what I have in my life. It is not worth more than Jesus and his kingdom. And then you've got to take the time to do the business of evaluating 
and selling it all for the sake of the kingdom. Amen? Sweating. Okay, so he said he found this treasure and then he covered it up because he went and he took some time to count the cost. And I can just, so here he goes. He goes to all his stuff, all the people that he knows. What are you doing? I'm selling all my stuff. Why? I found a treasure. It's worth more than anything. Just in case you think Shelly's off her rocker, which many people do, but for different reasons. I don't want it to be for the reason that you think I'm crazy in what I'm telling you right now, okay? I want you to look at Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. We're going to see Jesus corroborate his own uh, parable here in Luke chapter 14. Now, when I train Christian school teachers, I often use this section in principle to show that when a, when a teacher goes into a classroom, for example, if you want the lesson to turn out well, you better prepare. You better have all the materials you need to teach. You better have the lesson in your head pretty well or this is going to fall apart and the kids are going to be sitting in their seats laughing at you. Believe me, I've been there. They do. They laugh. Okay, so anyway, so let's say, you know, count the cost of what you're about to do. I never get up and speak a sermon unless I've counted the cost for a long time. I take it very seriously. I count the cost. So I don't want to get up here and have people laughing at me. Moreover, I don't want to get up here and have God ashamed of me because I didn't deliver what he told me to deliver. And that's what he's saying in Luke chapter 14. This is a principle you should share with your kids just about living. But the greater spiritual truth is so clear. Jesus says in, um, let's see, we're in Luke chapter 14, verse 25. Let's go to 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Are you crazy? Isn't the American dream about the perfect family, get a nice home, everybody loves each other, we're all happy? No, do you know what the real dream is? You love Jesus so much, your love for everyone else seems like Not that God doesn't want you to love people. Jesus is using the fine art of hyperbole here. He's throwing way past the point to make a point. He's saying this. Your love for me ought to be so hot and so great that your love for your mother, your children, your spouse, anybody else in the world appears like almost nothing because you are so obsessed You are so in love. You are so passionate with Jesus Christ, your Lord. Amen? That's what he said. He said, you have to be able to put those people behind you for his sake. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now look at what he says in 28. Which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether you have enough money to complete it? Otherwise, when you've laid the foundation and you're not able to finish, everyone will mock you, saying, this man began to build and he wasn't able to finish. I used to drive past a house every time on my way to Monroeville Mall, this big house that was like half completed for, I don't know, seemed like five or ten years. I was like, what was wrong with those people, you know? What happened? It seems ludicrous. But Jesus said, if you don't have enough to finish, don't start. If you don't count the cost of what this is going to mean, don't buy into it. In other words, be passionate. Amen? Passion is a word I love. Hope and passion. Okay, so anyway, we go on to verse 31. Or what king 
going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet the other king who's coming against him with 20,000. And if not, then he should send a delegate and ask for terms of peace. You'd be a fool to go to war if you don't have what it takes to win the battle. Amen? Jesus then says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, Any one of you that does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus wants you to sell your house and live on the streets. Because even if you live on the streets, you've got to have food and shelter. It doesn't mean he doesn't want you to own anything. But it means that at any given time, I should be holding to my home and my cars and my stuff so lightly that if Jesus says, you've got to let this go for me, I'm ready to let it go. And I've shared with you guys before, it's what I do with my health. I I shared in my testimony. God knows this is the truth. Every time I preach, my blood sugar skyrockets, and I know the damage that I could be doing in my body. And I have said to God, I've paced my house, I've told the devil off, and I've said to God, I don't care. I'm preaching anyway. My health is important to me, but it is not as important as the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've got to hold to your stuff and your people loosely amen god can take your stuff and your people from you what he wants to know is am i worth more than everything are you so on fire for me that you're not living for the mundane and the ordinary the guy found the treasure and he said covered it up and he went in his joy i love that part he didn't do this oh man now i got to give this up and that up going to do this to be a christian he wasn't mad in his joy he was like i found this secret i found this kingdom i found freedom from my guilt i found release from my sins i found the hope of eternal heaven i am right with god i'm getting rid of everything for that and he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys the whole field to make sure he's got that treasure amen Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, says that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. You may be sitting in the the pew today and you're not sure that you have been transferred out of the domain of darkness and put into the kingdom of dear Jesus. The Bible says that happens because we have redemption through the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of sins. There's not a person in here this morning that cannot be transferred from darkness, from, you know, you're stubbing your toe, you're losing your way in life, you're cold, you're lonely, you're in darkness. You need to be transferred into the kingdom of heaven. There's not a person in this place who that cannot happen to if you believe and trust in the Redeemer of your soul, Jesus Christ. I recently read the story of Governor Neff of Texas. He was governor of Texas from 1921 to 1925. He traveled to a state penitentiary in that state at one point, and he wanted to speak to all the inmates, and he did. And at the end of his speech, he said, if there is any man in here who wants to come and talk to me personally after this, I will wait, and you can talk to me one-on-one. Whatever you say to me will be kept in total confidence. And so he waited. And many men started streaming to come talk to the governor. 
And, and most of them were those who'd been, who were serving life sentences. And they would come to the governor one after the other and give all the reasons why they were in jail. You know, the judicial system failed me. You know, it was some kind of blunder. I was falsely accused. It was a setup. And they all would give different reasons and say, I deserve to not be in prison. I shouldn't be here. I was wrongfully sent here. Please let me go. Then finally, one man came up to Governor Neff, and he looked him straight in the eyes, and he said, listen, I did the crime. I, I was rightly sent to prison. But I believe I've paid the price. And my heart is in such a place that if you pardon me, I will come out of darkness and live like a man should who's been honored by such pardon. And Governor Neff pardoned the man on the spot. Now, there's one difference in that story between you and I. It is very true that every man, woman, and child needs set free from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God. And the only way that can happen is when a man, a woman, a teenager, or a child looks God straight in the eyes and says this, I'm guilty. I'm a sinner. The only difference is we don't then say to him, I believe I've paid for it. It's what we say. I believe when Jesus was nailed to the cross, and it wasn't just about the physical pain. When he bore the spiritual, spiritual separation from you, God, when he bore that pain, I believe he paid the price for my separation from you. And I, if you will set me free, God, if you will forgive me by the blood of Jesus, I will live like a man or woman or child or teenager who has been set free from sin and live as a child of the light. Amen? transferred into the kingdom of God. Bow your heads with me.